Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want to start a podcast but you don't know how? I didn't either. But let me tell you, if you ever heard about Anchor, that's the best way to make a podcast. When I tried, I must admit, I was a little bit skeptical at first, you know. But then then I heard, when I heard it was free, I didn't think it would be this good, okay? Let me tell you. It's so good. Because there's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You don't even need to deal with the headache of thinking about how to publish on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Because Anchor will do that for you. They use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. If you can, if you want to make a living from your podcast, when there is no minimum listenership required, so this is the place to if you want to start and make a living of a podcast. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. You can download the free Android app or on your Android or Apple phone, or you can go to anchor.fm to get started. Use Anchor for the, for your to make your podcast experience the ultimate podcast experience. Venet ad duas Roma. Welcome to part two of the decline and fall of ancient Rome. And that's all the Latin I know. He's back with us tonight. It's Eric Tiller. Mm. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to do a quick recap from last episode. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to go watch it. You don't have to, but I highly recommend it. But the last episode, we talked about the birth of Rome. Or Rome. We talked about Hannibal and his uh, battle with the elephants. Rise of Caesar. We talked about Augustus. A little bit about Tiberius and Capri, Caligula, how he, his reign of terror affected Rome. We talked about Nero, and we ended with the Battle of Judea and Lesbians' victory. And that's where we're gonna leave off today. So let's talk about when Vespian returned to Rome. Let's get right in after the Battle of Judea. How was was it after Nero's fall? Well, that was uh, the year known as the year of the four emperors, and uh, it's uh, an era that's marked by quite a bit of uh, instability. Uh, the reason for this is that uh, with uh, Nero dead, uh, the Julio-Claudian dynasty was gone, uh, meaning that uh, the line of hereditary emperors uh, was now basically wiped out. Um, some have seen this as a chaos following that, but uh, I would rather say that it's a return to the state 
where Rome had been uh, before uh, the Age of Emperors. Because if you remember from the period of the Civil Wars, uh, it was never really determined who would lead Rome uh, after the Senate had lost its uh, true power. Right. So I would actually say that it's uh, the year of the four emperors is actually quite similar to the second triumvirate uh, with Octavian, uh, Mark Antony and Lepidus, um, where, of course, Octavian came out on top. But even so, it was a period where you had uh, internal uprisings in uh, the Roman Empire, or what would become the Roman Empire. And just to call it uh, what it is, it's a continuation. Uh, I think I talked about it last time, uh, where the Marian revolution in the Roman army uh, yeah. meant that the commanders uh, were the ones who actually earned the loyalty of the soldiers, not the Senate. And uh, after the fall of the uh, Julian Claudian dynasty, this is exactly what we see. We see different candidates who have support from different parts of the army, and thus we get uh, another civil war. Let's talk a little bit about the year of the four emperors. What caused to have so many emperors in one in one year? And who uh, were these emperors? The four emperors. Yeah, the four emperors. Uh, let's see if I can remember this uh, uh, quite clearly now. Uh, they were Galba, uh, Otho, Vitellius, and of course Vespasian. And right, Vespasian meaning last emperor is correct. Yeah, he came out on top. Uh, and this was sort of uh, a succession of uh, who backstabbed who. Uh, starting with uh, Galba, uh, who was then murdered by those who supported Otho. Uh, and Otho, in turn, was defeated by Vitellius. And uh, what happened then was that those who had previously supported Otho uh, now joined Vespasian's side. Uh, so, actually, Vespasian uh, gained from Otho being defeated. Right. Would you say they were bad rulers, or would you just say it was a little bit of jealousy and personal agenda towards... I would say that uh, we don't really have any, what should we say, proper time lapse to say if they were good leaders or not, because they ruled for such a short time. So we could Hard simply... to say. Yeah. And let's talk about Vespin's reign. And he is, of course, known to build the Colosseum. And we talked about this many years before, actually. Mm -hmm. And what was a gladiator fight really like in reality, like, unlike we see in the films? Well, if you look at the films, for the sake of excitement, it's always to the death. But uh, a properly trained gladiator was uh, an investment, and uh, death was actually not the common outcome. Uh, quite a few times the idea was that they would fight to the first blood or until uh, one submitted. Uh, of course, when you are playing around with uh, sharp, uh, lethal implements, uh, accidents and deaths happen. And actually, some gladiators were actually booed out of the arena because they had killed someone by being sloppy. But let's talk a little bit about, about the arrangement in the arena itself for the audience, because in, in the nearest arena you had the Senate, and then it was uh, the poorest, furthest back. Was that how it worked, or...? 
Yes, uh, the Emperor uh, and the Vesalian virgins were, of course, the place the closest, uh, along with the senators, and then uh, the further up you got, the poorer uh, the audience were. So the prime seats were reserved. So, in a way, uh, the Colosseum could be seen as sort of this uh, reflection of the social stratification in the Roman society. Right. What is the status itself to be in the Colosseum? And would you say that if you just, it was kind of like the Super Bowl today, you've you, been to the Super Bowl, you've been to the Colosseum, was it kind of like this? When you compare it? Um, yeah, in a way. Um, got to remember that uh, these kinds of arenas were not uh, simply confined to Rome. Uh, they were uh, quite widely spread across the Roman Empire, and of course the Etruscans had uh, some similar traditions initially. So you could have these, what we call it, minor leagues uh, all around the Empire, but... Uh, right. Nothing quite as Colosseum. No, for the events in Colosseum, first you had basically the prime entertainment and what's often overlooked is that uh, it wasn't simply for uh, the kind of gladiatorial fights uh, we see in the movies uh, the entire uh, structure was uh, in fact uh, able to be used for different purposes uh, in one famous instance they even filled the entire arena with water uh, yeah, to recreate a naval battle yeah, I was about to ask ask to ask you then. It yeah, they filled the arena with water. But mm -hmm. how big were the ships, and how what was what was it like being when they filled it with water? Was it uh, difficult to fill it up, or was it you know how how fast well, was the process? Well, it uh, took quite a while because you need a few million gallons of water to of fill course. that uh, whole era, and uh, I wouldn't imagine them actually bringing a whole trium ship into the arena but even so it was quite an impressive spectacle and uh, if we look at uh, how the ruins are on display now we can actually see some uh, old traces of the old piping system that was used to flood the arena I was there a few years ago and it was quite amazing to just touch the walls of Colosseum and feel the history that was there see mm. imagine the battles it was quite mm. spectacular yeah and uh, one thing that I actually find very interesting about the Colosseum is what it tells us about how we perceive Rome. Uh, because there is a disparity between how the Romans look at things and how we look at things. For instance, the name Colosseum. Uh, that name was actually not used until the year 700, roughly, mm. by an English monk. Uh, the Romans would know it as the Flavian Amphitheatre. Flavius was one of Vespasian's many names. Uh, so they knew it as the Flavian Amphitheatre, and it was known as that throughout uh, the entire Roman Empire. So we need to move at least three centuries after uh, Rome had even dissolved, at least the Western Empire, until yeah. the name Colosseum is even in use. So if you had traveled back in time to ancient Rome and you had asked the way to the Colosseum, uh, they would not understand what you were asking about. You would right. have to ask for the Flavian Amphitheater. But Vespian didn't rule that long either. He just ruled for two years. So what, what exactly did he manage to do other than Colosseum when, during his rule? Uh, let's see. Uh, 
he initiated another uh, expedition into Britain. Uh, he didn't lead it himself, but he was the one who initiated it. And I think it was uh, Agricola who actually went there in year uh, 78. Uh, right. The Romans had had some incursions into British territory. For instance, Caesar, uh, while he didn't establish a permanent foothold, he had uh, conducted some campaigns there, but uh, it's under Vespasian we start to see a consolidated and permanent uh, Roman presence there. Right. And uh, of course we had to move on, unfortunately, but how? what was the reason he ruled so shortly? I mean, he just ruled for two years. How... How did he fall? Uh, yeah, uh, basically he uh, fell ill quite early on. I think it was in Campania uh, that he fell ill. And uh, then he uh, simply retired for the fa past uh, couple of years. So, which brings us to the next emperors, which are Titus and Domitian. Right. Unfortunately, we are not going to talk about them today. So if you want yeah. to find out, there's always internet books. Do you have any books, recommendations or sources you can look up those if people want to look more into those emperors? Uh, not to those emperors in particular, but... Uh, oh, and the thing about Rome is that it's uh, a vast topic. So for the kind of entry-level knowledge, uh, at least if you are a Scandinavian reader, uh, I would recommend uh, Eric Christoffersen, uh, a Danish professor's uh, uh, work on the Roman history, because it's a very good uh, entry point that brings out sort of the rough uh, outlines, but also enters uh, a discussion about some of the more uh, contested topics. Right. And uh, we've, now we're going to talk about perhaps one of my favorite emperors. He's known as one of the five good emperors, and his mm. name is Hadrian. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the birth of him, how he was born, when he was born in Spain, and where his origin, since we tell it that way. Uh, something that should be known about Hadrian is that he represents uh, sort of the... Uh, expansion of the Roman Empire and the expansion of the Roman aristocracy. For instance, uh, we usually think about uh, the Romans as purely Italian, but uh, Hadrian's uh, ancestors actually had roots from Spain. So here again we see that the expanded empire is now finding its way back into uh, the heart of the empire. Right, and when he first spoke to the Senate, he had quite poor Latin, isn't that? And he was kind of humiliated, in a way, because of his poor Latin. Yeah, I haven't looked uh, that much into exactly that, uh, but uh, then again, he was uh, sort of an outsider, uh, in that he uh, did come from a purely Italian family, but uh, rather from one of the... Uh, recently patriarchal families from the provinces. Right. And what, how did he get to power since he was an outsider? And is, how did he get to become an emperor? Oh, let's see. Now I need to just uh, uh, remember here. Hmm. Wasn't it his cousin, cousin's father or something? His father's cousin or brother? If I remember correctly, it was 
It was his brother, his father's brother, I think, who had quite power in Rome, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it was uh, Trajan uh, who uh, actually pushed for it. And uh, I think um, oh, this it's been a long time since I read about this. Uh, but uh, I think the um, idea there was that uh, he wasn't actually fully adapted. Uh, so there was quite a bit of discussion about uh, if Hadrian actually was uh, formally adapted as Trajan's son or not. Right, because that was quite common for emperors to adapt family as the son to become hero, isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, uh, First, it was sort of by coincidence. We mentioned last time how Octavian uh, sort of uh, caught everyone by surprise by being named as uh, Gaius Julius Caesar's heir. But as we enter the late, later uh, stages of the Empire, we can see that uh, it sort of became the rule that uh, the Emperor adopted the son and named him as heir. Uh, namely so that uh, it wouldn't be this hereditary system, but rather a semi-hereditary system. Right. And of course, Hadrian is known for Hadrian's Wall, so let's talk about Hadrian's Wall. Now, who says walls doesn't work? Yeah, uh, again, uh, we have the perception and the reality. Uh, sure, we have the wall. <laughs> that is quite undisputed. Uh, but uh, the wall was actually not the outpost of the empire. Uh, recent archaeological founds have found the uh, Roman forts, uh, not just temporarily ones, but uh, rather permanent ones, uh, quite a few miles north of the wall. So the Romans had outposts uh, beyond Hadrian's Wall. Right. And uh, again, I think the wall also represents uh, what kind of uh, emperor Hadrian was. Uh, because the most special thing we can say about Hadrian is that he was perhaps one of the emperors who saw the most of his empire. Uh, where, yeah. where several other emperors were quite uh, sedentary in Rome, didn't move that much around. Uh, Hadrian actually went around the provinces uh, quite a bit. He was ha traveled half his reign, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And he was quite fond of Greece as well. He liked ancient Greece. He liked the, the Greece traditions and everything. That's yeah, and, and the Greek philosophers. Uh, yeah. uh, it's been speculated that uh, it's uh, from Hadrian and his fascination with the Greek philosophers that we later see uh, Marcus Aurelius' interest in the Stoic philosophy. Right. I'm going to come back to that later, of course. Yeah. And... Uh, Something that's perhaps one of my I find more interesting about the Roman empires because they had an interesting law where for if for homophilia if uh, you, it's allowed to take an older man and a younger lover but mm -hmm. you can't but the same age was unacceptable. How was 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 there a reason for this or? Uh, I am not sure uh, what the reason is for that exact law, but uh, it uh, seems to me like it may have uh, sort of an uh, origin in um, the earlier Greek practice of pederasty. 
uh, where uh, it was common for a young boy to enter the tutorage of an older man. And, right. quite, a, and quite a few historians also see that as uh, sort of a sexual relationship, that it wasn't just uh, this uh, master-apprentice relation, but it was something a bit closer. Right, and he did have a, despite being married, he did, and despite his wife's annoyance, he met a younger male during his travels. Let's talk about this for a second, because this had quite an impact on Hadrian's life. Uh, yeah, let's see, what was his name again? Antonius, I think. Yeah, uh, that was the name. Um, uh, the thing about this is that he is perhaps one of the most uh, depicted persons in the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, we do not have any certain sources about their relation. Of course, there are speculations, and uh, many historians, both uh, yeah, semi-contemporary and later, have uh, played up their relation. But uh, what cannot be denied is that he is among the most depicted men in the Roman Empire. We find statues and busts with his likeness pretty much everywhere Hadrian went. And his death was quite devastating for Hadrian. We, we still don't know how he died. It could be sacrificed. It could be by Hadrian himself, so I'm speculate. What do you think about this scenario? Uh, about uh, the grief he displayed? Uh, his death. My mistake. Uh, some speculate that Antonius was killed, sacrificed, or voluntarily sacrificed himself. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't have any good sources on uh, exactly what became of him. But uh, what we do have some sources on is that uh, uh, he received quite a bit of critique in how he dealt with it. Namely that he grieved very publicly, uh, he showed quite a bit of emotion in public. And that sort of went against the Roman ideal. And uh, later we actually see that uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, when he grieved his father, he received sort of the same criticism, that uh, a proper man should not grieve that much in public. Right. And he also founded Anton. And forgive me if I read this wrong, Antionopolis in his name. Yeah. And uh, there was uh, even a cult uh, devoted to him. He has quite an affection for him, obviously. Mm. And of course, as uh, he was afraid, one of the reasons that money theorizes that he was afraid of the Senate being after him, they just says that's one of the reasons. He travels so much. What do, you, what do you think about this theory that his fear that the Senate was after him, in a way? Um, I am not quite sure there. Uh, I think it uh, could be more an attempt to consolidate his empire. Because at this point, uh, the Roman Empire was uh, closing in on its uh, maximum reach. And... Uh, that meant it was quite a vast territory, and considering uh, the uh, fairly recent uh, revolts and uh, unrest, um, it may have simply been to travel around and consolidate the power of the emperor, right. simply to keep it to, from breaking apart. 
And of course, all good things comes to an end with Hadrian as well. He was one of the ones emperors ruled the longest of mm-hmm. all the emperors. And how how did he, his reign come to an end? Oh, let's see. Uh, again, uh, he actually died from uh, uh, what's uh, considered to be fairly natural causes. Uh, he was. Uh, I think 62, uh, which was a decent age at that time. Uh, But again, it was mostly health-related issues. So he was among the emperors who actually uh, got to die in a bed. Right. And of course, with that, we don't want to talk about it. You mentioned him Mm. already. Of course, we had to jump a little ahead. Unfortunately, we can't get all the emperors. uh, something that's uh, worth noting is uh, how many of these emperors who earned uh, the title one of the good emperors, uh, what's rather characteristic of their reigns uh, is the improvement in the uh, uh, state structure, uh, in the infrastructure of the Roman state, uh, right. meaning that tax systems and uh, political systems are improved upon. And of course, we don't want to talk about the next good emperor. And I know you read his book, and his, you know, already know who I'm talking about, Marcus mm. Aurelius. Yeah. Many names remember him from the movie Gladiator, but we're going to talk about him more of his real yeah. reign. And how did he rise to power, Marcus Aurelius? Uh, again, uh, he was uh, born under Hadrian. Um, and uh, but he wasn't the direct uh, descendant or uh, successor of Hadrian. Uh, in between, we had uh, the uh, emperor known as Antonius Pius. Um, but uh, the thing about Antonius Pius is that uh, he was simply meant to be sort of an intermediate emperor. Uh, Hadrian knew it, uh, Marcus knew it, and Antonius knew it, but. Uh, uh, Antonius actually lived for quite a bit longer than anyone expected, so it took actually quite a few years until Marcus could uh, become emperor. Mm. Uh, but that time actually meant he could mature as a man, get uh, more comfortable with uh, his tasks. Right, and he, one, one thing that is most famous for perhaps is, of course, his book Meditations, <laughs> but he also gave all the citizens citizenship of the entire Rome. Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit about that process. So how was the process done? Uh, let's see. I just need to dig up in my heart. Because one of the things mm-hmm. that also since yeah. gave... Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. carry on. Yeah, uh, again, that uh, is uh, what I mentioned uh, just now, uh, one of the sort of hallmarks of uh, what was often considered uh, the good emperors. And uh, in Marcus's case, uh, the legal issues and uh, the courts were among the systems where he actually did the most. Uh, We, of course, know... Marcus as the philosopher emperor, and uh, as we'll probably get into later, the uh, uh, warrior uh, with the Marcomannic wars. Uh, but um, 
it's also his work on the Roman legal system that he is uh, quite well remembered for. Right. And he actually he did try to live his life as a philosopher, but he struggled quite a bit with this, that part. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, for uh, some part, he actually managed. Uh, he was uh, a follower of the Stoic school of philosophy. And what exactly is Stoic? Elaborate a little bit on this. Uh, how to describe it simply? Uh, firstly, it's uh, about uh, rejecting uh, comforts and trappings of power. And uh, that was uh, something he was actually quite known for, that uh, even as a uh, young boy, he would uh, sleep outdoors on the bare ground or on a plank, simply because his uh, Greek Stoic ideals... Uh, <laughs> Implied so, uh, but right. it's also um, a system where we talk about uh, personal ethics, that you need to actually have some personal values and ethics, but also that uh, these should be reviewed uh, in terms of uh, logic. Right. And uh, one of the things um, when it comes to Stoic ethics is that uh, you have the ideas of virtue. Now, virtue is nothing new. Uh, the Romans uh, valued quite a few variations of virtue, uh, but when it uh, uh, came to Stoicism, it was uh, mainly four virtues. Uh, that was uh, courage, uh, justice, uh, wisdom, and, as mentioned, moderation. So Marcus was not among the emperors who would flaunt uh, gold or jewelry or imperial robes, uh, but rather try to keep things simple. Right. And do you think that's one of the reasons he is considered uh, one of the good emperors, because he was so humble about himself? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I think it's more the way that, uh, not just his philosophy, but also that he dedicated himself quite a bit to improving on the emperor he governed, even before he actually entered uh, the position as emperor. Uh, for instance, as mentioned, uh, the improvements in the legal system. Uh, and that is sort of the thing we see with uh, both empires and states, that um, improvements in the state-making process is among the things that uh, improve longevity of these uh, nations. Right, uh, And I think I mentioned it last time that uh, we often get this impression that uh, Rome had quite a few bad emperors, which raises the question, how the hell didn't it collapse under those emperors? And the answer is that uh, at those points, you had such a well-developed state system that uh, the state of the Roman Empire could go on and function, even if the emperor was a raving lunatic. Right, and of course he had a son, which is more pro probably one of the most famous, because again because of Gladiator, mm -hmm. and he he brought him brought him a lot al along with his campaign, isn't that correct? From early age, uh, you're thinking about Commodus. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, when it comes to Gladiator, uh, quite a people like to rip into the historical accuracy. Of course. We are uh, going to come back to Gladiator a little bit yeah. later, of course. Yeah, yeah. but uh, in uh, this regard, uh, it's not really about uh, the arms and armor and the fact that uh, the final scene should have been Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix wrestling in a bathtub. Uh, 
but the greatest inaccuracy is actually Marcus Aurelius, because in the movie he uh, he is actually seen as wanting to restore the Republic, uh, which is certainly not the case. Uh, and also that he disowned and disliked his uh, own son, which was, again, uh, not the case. Uh, Commodus was actually being groomed from a very early age to become his successor, and he was actually a co-emperor uh, under Marcus Aurelius. So those two actually ruled together uh, in the very early years. Right, and how... They fought together against the northern enemies as well, which they're quite known for. Yeah. Uh, while Marcus Aurelius was uh, not known for being quite bloodthirsty, uh, in fact, uh, in uh, some sources he stated to be quite, uh, uh, what should I say, squeamish about the blood and gore, which is quite ironic because his reign was uh, uh, quite shaped by namely um, the wars. Uh, of course, there was first this war with uh, Parthia, uh, the Parthian Empire, uh, but then again, everyone had a war with the Parthian Empire and never quite managed to break them. Uh, but the most famous one is, of course, uh, the Marcomannic Wars between year 166 and 180. And right. uh, again, uh, it was... Uh, German expansion into the uh, Roman territories uh, where they kept trying to test the borders. Um, what is again uh, well worth knowing is that uh, the Germanic tribes they fought there uh, they were again not as depicted in uh, Gladiator. Uh, if we look at the movie you could easily get the impression that they were uh, disorganized people in uh, sort of rags and furs and wielding big massive axes but uh, the Germanic tribes at this point had become more similar to the Romans uh, when it came to military equipment and military tactics and this also explains uh, why this uh, war didn't become just a quick campaign to uh, suppress a rebellion, as we had seen, for instance, in Judea under previous emperors. Uh, here it became this long-winded, brutal slaughter fest. Right. And, uh, of course, we have this one unfortunate again, but he passed in 177, and his son, Commodus, would be famously take over. And I have to ask, how accurate is Jack Win Phoenix's portrait in Gladiator of Commodus. Uh, firstly, at that point, uh, Commodus should uh, be a little bit younger. And also, uh, quite a bit of his characteristic in uh, uh, the movie is uh, one of rejection because he never had loved his father. But uh, as we just spoke of, uh, that was not the case. Uh, so. While Joaquin Phoenix uh, got him right in that he could easily be depicted as a madman, uh, I think he would be a different breed of madman than the one you see in uh, uh, the movie. Uh, one good comparison here is actually Nero. Uh, why? Uh, because 
they both came into power at a very young age. Uh, that is uh, something that could be quite, uh, let's, say, what, let's call it, dangerous. Uh, for instance, he had been consul at the age 15, that's sort of the highest, uh, uh, what should we say? Uh, highest power in the world. Yeah, at that point, and uh, emperor, even a bit about that. So he was basically given supreme executive power at a very young age, uh, similar right. to Nero. And um, I can tell you, as a school teacher, uh, giving people of that age that much power uh, there, Not are, a good idea. there are better ideas out there, yes. But of course, he wasn't very interested in wars, was he? What made peace quite early on? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, he actually made peace uh, with the Marcomannic tribes quite early on, uh, simply to uh, end the wars. Uh, Which, of course, wasn't very popular in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, but uh, even so, uh, there were some uprisings in uh, both uh, Dacia and in Britain, uh, so his reign wasn't entirely without a war. But uh, uh, in uh, more common knowledge, he is known for, well, his way of being. Right. And uh, <laughs> again... I want to. Yeah. I want to talk about this as well. His sister and some someone else tried. Uh, other plotters tried to assassinate him early, as well, but have failed. Which is one one theorizes is where he became sort of the mad emperor as it, we know him. Yeah, uh, but uh, also again we can draw the parallels to Nero, uh, because fittingly enough, um, during Commodus's reign, you also had a major fire in Rome. Now, it wasn't something that just happened uh, on rare occasions. It happened quite often. Uh, but uh, similar to how uh, Nero was uh, starting to build a massive statue uh, with his likeness, uh, we see that uh, Commodus used the rebuilding effort of uh, Rome after that fire to call himself uh, the new Romulus uh, mm -hmm. as he refounded Rome. <laughs> Didn't he try to change the name as well to his name? The city, sorry, didn't he try to change the city to his name as well? Yeah, uh, Colonia Lucia Ania Commodia. Correct, yeah. Commodiana, yeah. And of course, he was famous and more, as in the movie, he was as well yeah. in, more interested in gladiator games. Yeah. It was quite shameful at that time. Yeah. For someone. Uh, that is also quite a bit of interesting history because uh, uh, initially, uh, while it was in the eyes of the public a scandal that an emperor would involve himself with gladiators like that, uh, he was initially quite uh, popular among the gladiators because he actually followed their training and also followed their rights, like for instance the last meal before uh, uh, the games. Uh, right. But uh, the it turned quite sour when uh, he proved to be, uh, well, quite a cheat. For instance, uh, having his opponents fight with uh, blunted weapons. Right. So, where his uh, popularity was actually quite high with the gladiators initially, uh, it soured when they 
felt that he disrespected uh, their traditions. Right, because he was, he wasn't very, what was he very good with sword fight, or was that wasn't very good? Was just wanted to win. Uh, well, uh, he did fight for real in the arena against opponents, but uh, he did make sure that he had an advantage uh, in that uh, he was armed with the sharp weapon and the opponent was not. And um, also, this was part of uh, how he tried to portray himself, because uh, where Caligula had uh, had this hard-on for Alexander the Great, uh, Commodus had a hard-on for Hercules. Yeah, and, he thought it was he thought it was Hercules himself. Yeah, and he also actually took the name Hercules as one of his many names. Uh, interesting fact is that uh, in the end he ended up with uh, twelve names and tried to rename the months where each month was one of his names. Then, didn't it wasn't his original name Lucius, if I remember correctly? Yeah, and that was a common Roman name. Uh, Roman names, of course, can be quite uh, yeah, familiar to popular culture, like Lucius. It's a name that shows up in quite a few franchises. Uh, but you also have names that uh, could easily be taken straight from Monty Python, such as Longinus. <laughs> and of course, he famously, as you mentioned before, he died in a bathtub. And one of the, in the well, that's, from what I've seen in the Netflix series, Roman Empire, Roman emperors. He, one of the gladiators was in on the conspiracy as well. Is is that correct at all, or is that? Yeah, uh, we actually know exactly who it was. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Commodus uh, was quite fond of uh, performing as a gladiator, and he didn't just pretend fight. He actually trained for it. So he did, in fact, have a gladiator trainer uh, called Narcissus. Uh, who is indeed the god of uh, Meg or narcissism, fittingly enough. Uh, but um, he, the conspirators who actually sought to kill Commodus uh, got Narcissus in on the deal. And uh, it ended up with him strangling Commodus in his path. So, strictly speaking, uh, Gladiator should have ended with uh, Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix in a bathtub. <laughs> But didn't Narcissus also find out that he made the blades like less sharp, sharp, less sharp than the blades as well? Yeah. So he was uh, one of the things that uh, turned him against him was again the disrespect against uh, the gladiatorial traditions, but uh, also that. Uh, well, uh, he was probably also offered quite a bit of money to help with the assassination. Right. And uh, something that's interesting is that uh, archaeologists have uh, almost tried to narrow down which uh, villa he was uh, staying in when the assassination mm -hmm. happened. And within there, they actually found the ruins of an ancient tub. So it's not entirely certain, but we may actually have found uh, the exact bathtub where Commodus was killed. Interesting. And also, of course, that comes to the end of uh, Commodus, and that's where many consider the start of the fall, decline and fall of ancient Rome. Yeah, uh, again, we had quite a long period here with a system that sort of worked, uh, similar to the um, hereditary uh, Claudio-Julian dynasty, 
uh, we now had a system where uh, you had emperors and co-emperors who were often adopted. Uh, but with the death of Commodus, we were once again back to the state where uh, different parts of the army declared for their candidate. So it was sort of a return again to the civil war stage that we see. Right, and that actually brings me to the next one of the five good emperors, and uh, his name is Emperor Constantine, and like the others, I have to ask, how did he come to power? Uh, let's see. How to put it simply? Uh, he was... Um, among those who were declared again co-emperor. Um, and at this point, uh, the Roman Empire had, in terms of administration, been divided into the East and the West. Uh, we can come back to that when we speak about the fall of Rome. Yes. Uh, because uh, even though it was divided like that on an administrative level, um, it was uh, not really... A division of the empire they still considered it one empire only that they uh, had uh, spread their responsibilities and uh, that meant that uh, you had uh, two emperors who in turn had uh, each of their own co-emperors that wasn't the, wasn't the title augustus and caesar was the apprentice if i remember correctly a bit opposite uh, caesar was uh, the emperor and the co-emperor right. co was uh, uh, called uh, Augustus. And it was kind of a race there as well, with Caesar in the first the first dictator as well. There mm. was a little race between Constantinople, mm. uh, sorry, not Constantinople, mm. but Constantine and mm -hmm. the other emperors. Yeah. And uh, if we look at it, now, the greatest opponent uh, to gain the sole power there was uh, Maxentius and uh, Maximian. So there was, right. again, this internal struggle within uh, the Roman Empire, uh, where the emperors and co-emperors did not really get along quite well, to put it widely. And uh, this was actually called the Tetrarchy, because you had... Uh, three different uh, contenders for the power in Rome, uh, which, in, of course, meant that uh, Constantine came out on top. And the final one on the path there was uh, Licinius, uh, after which we have uh, what we know as uh, Constantine's reign with the establishment of Constantinople. Right. Yeah, but let's talk about the establishment of Constantinople because it's perhaps one of the, if not the most important city in the ancient history, as we know. Yeah. Because it's had quite an impact on history. Yeah. It's kind of like a modern, ancient modern days Carthage, if you will. Yeah, I would say it's even more vital than Carthage because uh, that uh, city also was sort of the bulwark for uh, the continuation of the. Roman, at least as the Romans saw themselves. Right. Um, and something that's easily overlooked is that uh, the West wasn't really the wealthiest part of the empire. I think I mentioned it last time as well. Uh, the true wealth and power was in the East. 
So it was only natural that uh, Constantine established his city in the east. And, and the location was quite perfect as well, because it was near the Mediterranean Sea, if I remember correctly, and it's the trading routes were perfect, the defense, three walls in the city. Yeah, well. it's sort of on the choke point between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, uh, meaning that it's uh, quite a strategic location, but also a suitable location for being a trade hub. So it's quite a perfect location to have a city. Mm -hmm. In many ways. And of course, we have to mention that Constantine was one of the first to tolerate Christianity because, as we just mentioned last episode, it was not a happy time to be Christian in the first hundred years. No. But uh, what we can actually see on the Constantine is that um, Christianity became the prime religion uh, in the Roman Empire. And that is one of the things uh, Eric Christofferson actually discusses in his book. Uh, why did he actually convert? Uh, because uh, we often... Uh, Fam famously, many say that he converted on his deathbed, that he died a Christian. Uh, he wasn't really a Christian before, but on his deathbed, as many theorizes. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> we're, good. we're back there. Uh, but uh, what we see is that he initiated quite a few reforms throughout uh, his reign that favored the Christians more and more. But uh, he, according to, again, the sources, he was only baptized on his deathbed. But uh, that was not an uncommon practice at the time. So he may, in fact, have been a practicing Christian or Christian before this point, but he only got formally baptized on his deathbed. And the great question is, uh, why Christianity? And usually when we talk about this, we... Uh, got to look for political reasons or other motives. But in the case of Constantine, we actually have to look for the spiritual uh, reasons. Uh, at this point, uh, the Christians were not really a power in Rome. Uh, they were actually a minority. Uh, if we, right. The best estimates we have is that uh, at the most, uh, at the very most, 10% uh, of the population in the Roman cities at this point were Christian. Uh, so why would someone seeking to consolidate his power uh, take the religion of, well, a minority? That is, does not make sense from a place of power. But uh, from what we know from the sources is that Constantine was uh, quite a superstitious emperor. And right. that is something that's hard for people of this day and age to imagine, but uh, to people back then, uh, the divine beings and powers were actually quite real to them. And, and of course, this is also considered the fall of paganism, which of course, sadly, again, hmm. would lead to the fall of the library in Alexandria as well. Yeah, one of many falls. Uh, it had been burned on quite a few occasions. Uh, but um, let's see, when was the uh, last one? Uh, I just thought it was worth a mention, just a brief yeah. honorable mention. Yeah, but uh, the final fall of the uh, uh, library first came... Uh, I forget her name, she was a teacher, I remember she was yeah. a teacher. And I forget Hypatia. Her name. Hypatia, that's it, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was quite a few years after Constantine. Uh, it was when Alexander had already been Christian. Uh, 
and right. that was uh, Archbishop uh, Cyril, I think. We'll have to go back to Constantine, but I just want to mention it yeah. real briefly. But he he had he, he one of the other teams is known for is this institutional draw in three hundred six to three hundred seven. Hmm? So let's talk about this for a brief. If you know, is that you know anything about uh, which one? Part? Which part? Then uh, three three hundred six. It was a war and rebellion in World Draw three hundred six to three hundred seven. If I remember correctly. Uh, you think about uh, the Franks and the Alemanni? Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah, uh, that was again some of the pressure from uh, the northern borders. But uh, that was uh, not really a major war. Um, we always had this uh, idea of the barbarian invasions, but they were not really a problem at this point. But it would come quite soon. Right. And of course, as we now know, he would die a Christian, baptized mm. on his deathbed. Yeah. And uh, what many people miss is exactly the influence he had, not just on the emperor, but on uh, religion. Um, firstly, uh, he sort of set the course for European religion from this point on. Uh, because at this point, Christianity wasn't the only religion on the rise. Uh, you, for instance, had the uh, Zoroastrian-inspired uh, cult of Mithra, which was very popular among Roman soldiers, uh, which right. which was banned after uh, Christianity became the more dominating religion. But uh, what many don't realize, uh, a common misconception is that uh, Christianity as we know it today uh, is uh, mostly a Middle Eastern religion. Uh, but the thing is that while the origin of Christianity is in the Middle East, uh, the form and shape and doctrines and the entire idea of it, as we know it today, was shaped by the Romans. Right. So if, for instance, uh, you read in the New Testament the Roman letters there, uh, you can see that many of the uh, doctrines that we find in Christianity, for instance, the view on women, is actually a continuation of the Roman view on women. Hmm. And of course this brings us uh, to the fall of Rome. Hmm. I mean, as you mentioned, they split the empire in four to have four different emperors rule. But that didn't go very well. No, it uh, fractured uh, the infrastructure and again, as I said, the strength of the empire was the state administration. And as the um, uh, empire got uh, more and more fractured in terms of uh, uh, administration. Uh, this could no longer be really cohesive. And uh, it wasn't as much as a uh, sudden dramatic fall, but more of a long-term process. And it's both internal and external. Uh, the, right. the internal is, of course, that uh, the provinces... Uh, were controlled less and less by Rome and more and more by themselves. So you had this internal fracturing leading to a reduced power for the Western Emperor. Uh, but uh, you also had the external forces and those were the barbaric migrations. I say migrations because uh, invasion is sort of not covering this entire thing. Uh, 
what we see here is uh, basically a chain reaction. Uh, most uh, associated with uh, the Huns coming westwards. Uh, the thing about the Huns is that we don't really know where they came from. Uh, some have theorized that they came from all the way over to China, but that's not been proven. It's just a theory. And as a nomadic people, they left very few traces. So we don't really know that much about the Huns, but they of course contributed to the external pressure, especially on the Western Empire. Right. Because the Romans were losing territory at this point, isn't that? Yeah. Uh, some of the territories were simply abandoned uh, or uh, resettled with Germans to use as sort of a buffer against Huns and other tribes. Uh, but also, as um, the infrastructure uh, sort of uh, fractured, uh, you no longer had the ability to field the large armies. And right. this uh, chain reaction is among the many things that caused the Roman Empire to decline. Now, can we talk about it as a fall? Uh, there I would disagree. Uh, in the eyes of the Romans, Rome never actually fell. Why? Because you still had the Eastern Roman Empire. And as I mentioned about Colosseum, uh, how we talk about things and name things, it's different from how we see it to how they looked upon it. And to the Romans, living in the Eastern Roman Empire, Rome never re really fell. It simply shrunk. They lost the Western provinces, but the Roman Empire just continued as the Roman Empire. Uh, later historians have, have of course, uh, called it Byzantium, and that name was used later. But uh, that was not before the Renaissance, though. Yeah. So the Romans never woke up one day and said, "Oh shit, the West is gone. We are now Byzantium." That was not the case. They simply saw themselves as uh, Romans still, only without the western part of the empire. And we are, of course, going to have an own episode about the Byzantine Empire. So. Yeah. But uh, one thing that should be mentioned when we're talking about the migration period and the chain reaction of the barbarians moving is that uh, we often talk about the, all the effects of it in the south with the decline and the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But uh, what we've seen in recent archaeological finds is that this also had uh, a major effect all the way to Scandinavia. Right. Um, how to put this briefly? Um, what we see is that uh, there is a shift in uh, power structure and settlement. Uh, where we previously had uh, smaller communities with uh, what we can at least read from the findings, uh, a very egalitarian society where people didn't really stand above the others in terms of power, uh, we suddenly get this uh, consolidation of power in uh, uh, larger territories. So we see the forming of uh, early petty kingdoms. Do you think corruption and... Uh... The, the economy had a big part in the fall of Rome, or do you think? Uh, I would actually think so. Um, again, as I said, the eastern provinces were the wealthy ones. And uh, when we got this uh, sort of sharp administrative divide between the east and the west, it also meant that the west got a smaller share of the taxation of the east, meaning that they had a much weaker economy. Right.
But I have to ask because they split into kind of split into mm. the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine, Byzantine or as I like to call it, the yeah. Byzantine Empire. Yeah. But who do you consider the true successor? Do you think it was the Byzantium or the Holy Roman Empire? I would say 100% the Byzantium Empire uh, because they were simply a direct continuation of Rome. Uh, they were Romans. Though there isn't any middle stage between Byzantium and uh, Rome. It is simply Rome that develops on. Uh, while the Holy Roman Empire is sort of uh, a construction that comes much later. Uh, you have this intermediate period uh, where the old Roman provinces uh, are divided. And again, you get a similar process as you see in Scandinavia with the establishment of the petty kingdoms. And as these grow, uh, we get uh, what we know as the Frankish Empire, uh, which covers much of what is today France and Germany. Uh, this started during the Merovingian dynasty, but was really consolidated during the Carolingians. Uh, and of course, Charlemagne, uh, Charles the Great, is uh, the one who is most known for it. And uh, in the year 800, Keep in mind, we have sort of a 300-year gap here. Uh, but in the year 800, he was declared the, the successor of Rome by the Pope in Rome. So, And that was sort of a competitor to the uh, Eastern Empire. And where, do, where does the Holy Roman Empire come in this? Well, after Charlemagne died... Uh, uh, the Frankish Empire was sort of split, uh, where the western part would later develop into the Kingdom of France, while the eastern part became uh, this sort of patchwork of these independent states that uh, became the Holy Roman Empire. So, Which is this quite a complicated process. Oh, uh, you started to learn it. It's complicated. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, to put it simple... Um, the Byzantium Empire is the true successor of the Roman Empire because it's nothing else. It is the Roman Empire. It is the same empire as the one that existed in antiquity, only it survived the fall of the Western part and just continued doing its thing. While if you look at the Holy Roman Empire, uh, you first have the intermediate stage between uh, the Western Roman Empire and the Frankish Empire, which is roughly 300 years, and then you have roughly another 150 years until uh, the eastern part begins to form what we know as the Holy Roman Empire. Right, and of course we have to talk about the short, sort of short version of the fall, official fall of Rome, because it was barbarians, or not really, I wouldn't hesitate calling them barbarians, because they, one of the reasons was that they were starvation in the Germanic tribes so they wanted to come in to the Roman Empire to make sure that the, the, that the people were living so I kind of have quite sympathy for the German yeah. people and, in this case and uh, again looking at very recent findings uh, from the past two years uh, we see that uh, it wasn't just the Hunnic uh, invasion that uh, caused these tribes to move towards the Roman areas uh, we also see that um, in this period, we had uh, uh, a rather cold period in Europe. Uh, it was not its coldest uh, during the fall of the Western Empire, but it was definitely cooling down. So, 
uh, a colder climate is among the many reasons that people migrated in this period. So yeah, that kind of got sympathy for them, and because the Romans mm. refused to let them in. As a result, they came to Rome in the end. Mm. So again, it's complicated. We have uh, internal reasons such as uh, the fracturing of the infrastructure and the administration. Uh, we have natural disasters, we have diseases, uh, we have the Huns who caused the migration of the tribes before them, and then the direct war with the Huns. And we also had a cooling climate uh, with the zenith of the cooling at year 550 or so. So it's complicated. You're right. I think it's not bingo. <laughs> bingo, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, I, just, I don't think it's important to mention that it's kind of ironic. Of course, it, we mentioned in the last episode that this is a myth, but the last mm. emperor of Rome mm. would be called Romulus. It's kind of ironic yeah. as well. It's very ironic. Uh, but uh, on the question of the heir to the Roman Empire, uh, we just discussed uh, what would be considered a true heir. And that would, of course, be uh, the Byzantium Empire. Of course. But, Which we'll talk about in the next episode. Yeah. yeah. So Byzantine is basically Rome. It's nothing else. It's Rome. Only it's been developed for quite a bit longer than the Western Empire. But uh, the idea of Rome is one that uh, endured. Uh, when I'm teaching, I often call this the dream of Rome, uh, namely that people have tried to revive uh, the Western Empire, but also the Eastern Empire. Yeah. But I kind of realized that Rome was a lost cause at that point, that they would eventually get it back, get it back which they did at some point. Uh, you're thinking about the Holy Roman Empire, or...? Uh, but Byzant didn't Byzantium have the Rome at one point as well? Uh, at one point, yes, but it wasn't really something permanent. Uh, what uh, we can see is that many people tried to use the past glory of Rome to sort of elevate themselves. We can see this with um, uh, the Franks, uh, with Charlemagne. Uh, who was crowned uh, sort of the protector of Rome, even though he was of Frankish origin, who were, well, previously enemies of Rome. Uh, we see this in the Holy Roman Empire, which was uh, the Eastern Frankish Empire that uh, broke off. Uh, again, this is Germany. What does it have with Rome? Uh, not, mm. Nothing, really. And we can also see the same after uh, Constantinople fell uh, in year 1453. Uh, right. When the uh, Russian monarch figured that, hmm, I am married to the niece of the fallen emperor. That makes me emperor. So even though we can talk about uh, the Byzantine Empire as uh, uh, the true continuation, and I use the word continuation, not air here, uh, there are still many ideas about uh, being the successor of Rome. So even though it really didn't get a true successor in the West, uh, we still see that people lingered to the dream of it. And of course, this is also the start of the medieval Dark Ages as well. Yeah, uh, I would not say it's the beginning because you have this intermediate period. And uh, it's not a very long one. Uh, the migration period is a very short and eventful period in time. 
But we see that uh, the society that uh, comes out on the other side is quite different from the one we have when we go in. Right, and I think that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much yeah. for returning. If you like this episode, you can look forward to the next one where we talk mm. about more in-depth about the Byzantine Empire. And mm. if you like this episode, like, share, and subscribe. I'll see you next week. My name is Alan. My guest has been Eric Tiller. Thank you so much for being mm. on. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And I'll be back.